Amen. Thank you all for being here today. And uh, like Al said, we're going through the book of Psalms, picking out some different Psalms. And this week we are in Psalm 119. I want to start off with a question. Do you remember ever trying to get to know someone and what that process was like? Right, as, as a kid, you get to know friends all the time, it seems like. I read a study not too long ago that said the average person between 22 and 35 does not make a new friend. I think part of that's because when we're raised and we're coming up through school, you're forced to sit in a classroom eight hours a day with 25 other people that you don't know. So you're making new friends. But do you remember what it was like to make a friend? Remember what it was like to get to know somebody for the first time? Maybe you're married and, and you're thinking about your spouse. What was it like when you were getting to know your spouse? Maybe it was when you went to college and you had a roommate and you didn't know who it was. And you get to school and you're going, who's this person going to be? Right? How, how did you do it? How did you go about getting to know that person? I think one thing is super clear, and especially when you think about the college roommate story, you can't walk into somebody's room, look at their stuff, and get it. People are more than the sum of their parts. People are more than just the sum of their stuff, right? And it's interesting, Carrie and I are in a TV show right now called Blue Bloods, and it is a fascinating TV show. Uh, but it, it's about right crime in New York City, and there's always this whodunit going on every episode. And uh, I think every episode so far has been wrapped up in a nice, neat bow, and, it, and it's been awesome. Uh, but it's interesting when someone dies and, and police go and investigate, at least in the shows, there's this like trying to put together what this person was like, right? So they're searching their computer, they're looking through their phone, they've got call logs, and they're talking to coworkers and spouses and friends, and they're trying to put together what was this person like. But what I've come to notice is they almost never find out who it was just from looking at mere facts. There's always this story that's lurking beneath the surface that really lets you know who someone is. And they always find out these things through stories of someone that's close to them. So I think the way we get to know people, the only way we get to know people is if they let us in. Right, Because we can't just look at their stuff, we can't just look at what they own or what they do, but every single person has thoughts, desires, dreams, hopes, they have pain. Everybody has a story. And you can't get to know anyone unless they let you into that story and they tell you the story, but they also invite you into the story to live it with them and you find out how they're reacting and how they're living and how they're hurting. You can't know anyone unless they let you in. And the same is true of God. You know, we all would have no chance to come to know God if he had not let us in. We, we cannot know God unless he does let us in. The important part of this letting in is that it's one-sided, Right? And, and a technical term that theologians use or that anyone would use when talking about getting to know someone is revelation, self-revelation. I'm revealing myself to you. I'm making known something about who I am to you. So if we can't get to know anyone unless they let us in, and if we can't get to know God unless he lets us in, the question we're asking this morning is, well, 
has God let us in? Has God let us in? Well, in Psalm 119, we have 176 verses that emphatically answer yes. Psalm 119 is in almost the exact center of your Bible. As far as chapters go, the middle chapter of the entire Bible is just two chapters over. It's Psalm 117, which is actually the shortest chapter in the Bible. But Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in God's word. It has 176 verses, and there's actually a beautiful structure that's coming through in Psalm 119. It's not just massive and big. It's actually really beautiful. So 176 verses. There's 22 stanzas, and each stanza has eight verses. Now, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, and so what the writer did was he took each letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order, started all eight verses with that letter, and then ended the stanza. And then he went to stanza two and started all of it with that. So if you look at your Bibles, they might have headings. Right before Psalm 119, verse one, it says Aleph. And then right before verse nine, it says Beth. So he's going through the Hebrew alphabet, and it's telling you that every verse in that eight-verse stanza starts with the same letter. So we're talking about poetry. Let's just let's wrap our minds around that, okay? Poetry. He's trying to get something massive and beautiful across to us. And across all 176 verses, 22 stanzas, that's this alphabetic acrostic, there is one massive theme. And it is God's word. It is God's word. See, this chapter is so big and so important that all throughout Christian history, pastors and theologians have taken special attention to Psalm 119. Charles Spurgeon wrote a commentary in three volumes on the book of Psalms. He spent over 300 pages on this one chapter. And he went so far, he had a pastor's college, he went so far as to tell every pastor, you need to memorize Psalm 119. Charles Spurgeon felt the weight of what's being communicated here in Psalm 119. So of all these 176 verses, there's only three of them that don't specifically mention God's word. That is 173 verses that do talk about God's word. So what we have is verses 1 through 3 are this this meditation, this declaration. It, It looks like an introduction to wisdom. It says, blessed is the person who does these things. But then after verse 3, The psalmist spends the next 173 verses praying. So let's try to wrap our minds around this for a second. The writer is talking to God about God's word. So what we see in Psalm 119 is a meditation in the presence of God on the value of meditating on God's word. Okay, I know that's a little bit confusing. So the the psalmist is writing and he bursts out in prayer to God. And he starts saying, every time you see a word that's used to describe God's word, there's this really important word that comes right before it, your. That indicates who he's talking. He's talking to God. He's praying your word, your precepts, your law, your statutes. He bursts out in prayer. So he's in the presence of God. He's praying, and he's, he's praying to God, telling God how wonderful his word is. So when we ask the beginning question, how do you get to know anyone? Well, they got to let you in. Well, has God let us in? Psalm 119 says 
beautifully, powerfully, massively, yes. Now, it's no coincidence that in the middle of the Bible's prayer book is the longest chapter in this prayer, but it's a book of prayers. The longest chapter in the book of prayers is a prayer about God's word. They're linked. God's word and prayer are beautifully linked together. And the point of both of them is that they help us get at God himself. They're both ways that we can have fellowship with God. And so I don't want you to miss that today as we're walking through this incredible chapter that we can get to God himself and have fellowship with him through his word and through prayer. So let's dive into the content of Psalm 119. I really wrestled with how do you break this up? If you've heard me preach before, typically I'll take a chunk of verses and I'm going one verse at a time and we're explaining it and we're applying it and we're diving in to see what God means. And that would have been impossible this morning. So I tried to pull out some themes. And the first thing I want us to notice is that in this psalm, if you've never read it all the way through, like Pastor Al said, it takes about 20 or 25 minutes. But there's eight or nine words that are used to describe God's word. He calls God's word law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, word, promise, and ways. And all of these words are used a combined more than 175 times. So here's my first point in the form of a question this morning. What is God's word? What is God's word? You think, what a silly question. We're at church. Hopefully you knew that before we came. No, no, no. That's not my attitude this morning. My attitude this morning is if we're going to gather every week and we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about this, uh, what is it? So when you look at these words that the psalmist used to describe God's word, let's be honest. I'll read back through them again and, and maybe you can pick up the theme. Law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, word, promise, ways, these all seem like they're talking about some sort of instructions or rules. And before I lose some of you right now, let's just own this cultural moment we're in. We don't like that. We don't like the idea of instructions or rules, right? It's constricting. It's narrow-minded. I, really, you got to give me rules? Hey, and you may even be a Christian and go, man, I love God, but... Let's don't use the rules word because unbelievers don't like that and they think God just gives rules and if we just keep saying, yeah, God did give rules, man, they're just gonna keep writing us off. So can we not, can we use a different word? And here's my ask to you today. Bear with me. Bear with me. In fact, I wanna go back to Exodus 20 when God gives the most famous rules that we think of, right? The Ten Commandments. So right before God gives the Ten Commandments, did, did you actually know that he said something right before he starts giving the rules? You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read the verse. But right before God starts giving the Ten Commandments, the Ten Rules that he says, hey, this kind of sums up a lot of what I'm about to tell you. But hey, here's Ten Commandments that are going to cover a, a lot of your bases here. He actually says something right before that. Yeah, he says, uh, he says this, quoting Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before God gives his people rules and commandments, he tells them who he is. So God's not concerned with pulling abstract rules out of a hat. God's concerned with telling you, here's what I'm like, so here's what you should do. 
So the first point this morning is that God's word shows us what he is like. Now, he primarily does that, especially in the Old Testament. I had a great conversation with Brian, who's not here this morning, but we sat at lunch and we just wrestled with, man, the Old Testament is hard sometimes. In fact, we're wrestling with how do we preach through the whole story of the Bible over the next year or so. And the Old Testament can be difficult because there are rules, and there's rules that are hard to grapple with, and how do we apply them to us? But the point is not just the rules are abstract and God pulled them out and said, hey, just do this. God said, I am the Lord. I saved you, period. Now here's how you should live. So before we cast off rules and commandments as constrictive and narrow-minded, let's realize that when God gave the most famous commands in the book of Exodus, right after he saved his people out of Egypt, that's the first thing he says. I am the Lord your God. Al's been emphasizing as he's been preaching the Psalms, this name Yahweh. Anytime you see the word Lord and it's in all caps in your Bible, it's indicating that in the original language, in Hebrew, it was the name Yahweh. And in Exodus 20, he's telling them, this is who I am. I am Yahweh. What did that mean to the people of God? Well, they understood that as he is the creator Covenant maker, covenant keeper. He's faithfully loving. He's saving. He's redeeming. He is the, this is how the Old Testament says it. He is the I am. If you're an English teacher, you're cringing that I'm saying language like that. He is I am. If you're not a native English speaker this morning, I apologize for how confusing I'm sure that sounds. But the point is that God is saying I am. I am before time. I am in Genesis 1 in creation. I am in the Old Testament. I I never cease to exist. I'm eternal. I'm self-existing. That means God doesn't depend on anyone else to exist. He He is in himself pure life and existence. No one created God. There was nothing before him. And God, before he gives rules, he says, this is who I am. So it's important for us to recognize as we read Psalm 119 and all of the word of God, when we see commandments and rules and instructions for how to live, we need not cringe because we're scared. What we need to do is press through the rules to go, what about God's character led him to give us these rules? What is it about who God is that made him tell us to live like this? So God's word tells us, it shows us who he is. But we've been talking about rules and instructions. God's word shows us who he is, but God's word also shows us what we should be like. God's word shows us what he is like, and it shows us what we should be like. That's the rules and the law and the instructions. In Leviticus 19, God says, be holy for I am holy. That might be the most succinct summary of what I've been trying to explain. Be holy for I am holy. God's law reflects his character. God's word shows us what he is like. It shows us what we should be like. And then the Bible constantly recounts how people have failed in this regard. It is not enough to see what God is like and then to see what we should be like. If you think that is enough, then I want you to try to ignore the New Testament and only read the Old Testament. And you will see story after story of utter 
failure. So while God's word shows us what he is like, what we should be like, God's word also shows us Jesus who makes us right. Hey, here's what God is like because he's like this. Here's how you should be. And I know you're never going to be that. So here's one to make you like that. Here's Jesus because I know I'm giving you commands that you can never measure up to in your own power. God's word gives us what he's like. Beautiful. We worship, right? Jay said this morning, let's sing about the attributes of God for a minute. And then when we see what we should be like, one of the functions of the law, you read this in Romans 3, is that we look at the law and we see how sinful we are. We see all the ways that we've never measured up. But then God's word does not leave us as failures who cannot measure up. God's word shows us Jesus who makes us right. Jesus alone makes it possible for us to come back to God in a personal relationship because Jesus came and did what we could never do. Jesus came and he truthfully prayed Psalm 119. Wrap your minds around this. Just because the guy wrote Psalm 119 who wrote it, just because he wrote that doesn't mean it was always true of him. Okay, he struggled to believe this. He struggled to do this. There was a point in his life that he did not love or obey or keep God's word. Jesus came and he could truthfully pray Psalm 119. Hey, God, I love your word. He never failed at loving God's word. Hey, God, I love you. Jesus never failed at loving God. In fact, Jesus says in the book of John that doing God's will, which is revealed in his word, doing God's will was as good as food for him. He said, I have food you don't even know about. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. So because God showed us what he's like and he showed us what we should be like, and because we were constant failures and had no hope of doing that, God wrote himself into the story because our root problem was so tragic that we needed something deeper to fix us. Follow me for a second. Maybe you've read the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you saw some of the movies. But C.S. Lewis wrote a beautiful uh, group of books that all go together. And my wife and I have been trying to read through them. She's, I think, almost done. Uh, I'm like way behind. But she has been captivated by these stories. And uh, the most famous one, if you read them in publication order and not chronological order, you'll read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first. And that's probably the most popular one. I think that was the first movie to come out. But if you know anything about that story, you know there's these four siblings and they go stay with like a family friend and they find this wardrobe and they go in and the youngest sister's like, I just found this, <laughs> this land of people in this wardrobe. And of course, right? No, you didn't, right? You're, you're this little girl and you didn't find a... Well, then they all end up going in this wardrobe and they find this beautiful land that you come to find out is Narnia. And in Narnia, when they first discover it, it's covered in snow, it's cold, and it's even described at one point as always winter but never Christmas. In other words, what, what do you look forward to when it starts to get really cold? Christmas. You have the hope of Christmas, this joyful celebration, time off from work, time with family. So that's how horrible when they first found Narnia. That's how horrible it was. And they don't really know why. They don't really have any story here. But uh, actually, the middle brother, Edmund, ends up running into this character named the White Witch. And the White Witch promises Edmund, hey, if you bring me your siblings, 
I'll make you a prince. There'll be dukes and duchesses, but you'll be the prince of all of Narnia. And she's claiming to Edmund, saying, I'm the queen. So if you bring your siblings to me and essentially sell them out, you'll be the prince. And he agrees. And he tries to do it. And what happens is she's not the queen. The rightful king of Narnia, if you know the story, is Aslan, the mighty lion. And what happens in the story is the queen comes and says, well, Aslan, you know the law of the land. It was called the deep magic. And it was a law that stated anyone who was a traitor against the rightful king deserved to die. And so, of course, the siblings are are terrified. Edmund's going to have to lay down his life. He's going to have to die because he's been a traitor against Aslan. And then you see Aslan and the White Witch go over and have a conversation and come back and say, actually, he's not going to have to die. And that was the end of the conversation. And I want to read you a, a quote from Aslan. Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia says, though the witch knew deep magic, there was a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Do you see what C.S. Lewis did? He wrote into this beautiful story of Narnia. And when someone is a traitor against the rightful king, they deserve to die. But when an innocent person chooses to die for them, then that person is not only saved, but death actually begins to work backwards. This story is a picture of what has happened to us through Jesus. We rebelled against the rightful king, and therefore we deserve death. We rebelled because the evil one convinced us that we would receive some sort of power, some path to joy that was never even really possible. The only way we could be freed was either for us to die or for the innocent to die in our place. Our root problem was so deep that according to us, as far as we were concerned, It was irreversible, but God went deeper still and reversed the curse. God sent Jesus to save us from our sin, pay the penalty for it, forgive us of it, and bring us back to him. And here's the good news. The whole Bible tells us about Jesus. In Matthew 5, you don't have to get very far in the New Testament to see Jesus telling people, hey, don't worry, I'm not here to abolish and do away with the law and the prophets. I'm here to fulfill it. In Luke 24, you have this story of Jesus on the Emmaus Road, and there's some disciples and some followers of Jesus that didn't recognize him. He, Jesus had died, been resurrected. He's walking down the Emmaus Road, and they're like, hey, why? he's like, hey, why are you so sad? And they're like, man, where have you been? Have you not heard this is Jesus of Nazareth, man? They killed him. He's like, oh, tell me about the guy, right? And then it says that he actually sits down and shows them through the whole Bible how everything was really about the Messiah, Everything in the Bible is really about Jesus. In John 1, you you see that John calls Jesus actually the Word of God, capital W Word, because Jesus makes known who God is. In Hebrews 1, 
The writer says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So while the word of God tells us and shows us what God is like, Jesus comes and does that in a much better way that actually brings us by the hand to God so that we can never leave there again. So when we come to this first question that Psalm 119 begs us to ask, what is God's word? God's word shows us what God is like. I am Yahweh, loving, faithful, redeeming one. God's word shows us what God is like. It shows us what we should be like and how we should live in light of who he is. And when we fail at that, God's word shows us Jesus who makes us right. So, if that's what God's word is, uh, and Psalm 119 leads us to that, Psalm 119 also gives us some other truth that we can apply to our life. What should we do with God's word? What should we do with God's word? And here's where it gets really fun because the, the writer in Psalm 119 finds the most creative ways to talk about some of these things. First point, what should we do with God's word? We should desire his word. The writer says that he delights in God's word 10 times. He longs for it seven times. He loves it 11 times. He says upwards of 40 times how much he desires God's word. A desire for God's word. Well, the only reasonable explanation for this deep of a love for God's word is that through the word, we can know and have fellowship with God himself. We don't desire God's word in an idolatrous way, thinking that this somehow saves us and that this is somehow the be-all, end-all. We celebrate this because it's like a pair of glasses. Through it, we see the one who spoke it. So the reason we desire this is because this is the looking glass through which we can see Yahweh for ourselves. And the psalmist, it, it, he gives us no lack of clarity that we should desire with all of our being God's word. This is actually exactly why this chapter is in the form of a prayer and it's placed in the middle of the book of prayers. Because as we become familiar with God's word, we become more familiar with God himself. And that leads us to the next point. What should we do with God's word? We should desire it because it helps us get to God. But as we desire it, it's not enough to just want it and leave it closed. We ought to meditate on God's word. He uses this word meditate or meditation about eight times. But then he says it so many different ways. He says he stored up God's commandments. He's remembered them. He will not forget. He has his eyes fixed on them. He beholds God's word. He clings to it. He has sought it. And he's asking for God to teach him God's word. And he learns God's word. He says that God's word, are, his words are sweet to his taste, sweeter even than honey. In, Psalm one, in, in, chap, in verse 161, he says, uh, God, would you teach me your word? He says he's in awe of God's word. He asks for understanding of God's word. So this goes beyond a mere desire for it. The psalmist is saying, get in it. Dive headfirst in it. So, so now we've got to back up for a second and, and, and come to terms with the fact that uh, I just used the word meditation. And so let, let's try to define this biblically because the Bible uses the word. So let's try to redeem it 
So I'm not talking about trying to be as still and quiet as possible so that you have nothing in your mind. When the Bible uses the word meditation, it's implying familiarity. You can't meditate on what you don't know. So we're not trying to get in this state of complete emptiness of mind. Tim Keller says that biblical meditation is filling your mind with scripture, then thinking it through so that you push the truth that's in your mind down into your heart until it affects all of you. Other people describe it as pausing and pondering God's word. Some people say it's like reflecting on God's word and kneading it into your hearts. Colossians 3.16 tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Meditation fights the tendency to read the Bible so quickly that we fail to forget what our eyes just saw. Meditation is the discipline to linger a little bit longer over what we've read in God's word. And here's the beauty of meditation. We talked earlier about God's word and prayer. We know we need to be reading God's word. We've seen that so far from Psalm 119. We know we need to be praying to God. Meditation bridges that gap. Meditation bridges that gap for us from breathing in God's word and breathing out prayer because as we stop and we reflect and we consider and we think through scripture, it gives us a chance to genuinely and thoroughly think through what God's word means for us. And then it turns our prayers into personal, genuine response to God. See, in God's word, he has started a conversation with us. He has spoken to us. He desires that we speak back in prayer. And the way we do that is that we eat, we consume God's word. How do we consume God's word so that we can meditate on it. Well, Alice showed me a great tool if you take your hand. We can talk about hearing God's word, which is what we're doing this morning. Reading it. You may read three or four chapters at a time. You might study God's word, right? You, you dig a little bit deeper into maybe just a smaller part of scripture and you're really trying to get the meaning in there. But then you might memorize God's word, right? And that's when you, that's when you know someone says, hey, what, what's this verse? And you go, Psh, I know it right there on the top of my head. And then if you look at your thumb, this is meditating on it because you can meditate on what you hear. You can meditate on what you've read. You can meditate on what you've studied. You can meditate on what you've memorized. But the point is that however we're taking in God's word, that we're not just taking it in and letting it sit. We're meditating on it, pushing it from just head knowledge down into our heart so that it affects all of us. And the cool part about looking at that hand illustration is that it leads us right to our last point. And that is, uh, what should we do with God's word? We desire it, we meditate on it, and, and we obey it. And if you look at that hand and you're doing these five things, the palm of that hand is, is obey, obedience. So again, I, I've got to address the fact that we, we want to cringe a little when we hear a word like obedience. Because if you're anything like me, there's been points in my life when I hear the word obedience and I want to cringe up and I want to hear what Jesus says in John 14, 5 when he says, if, or 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commands, and I want to go, wait a second, I thought this was a grace thing. Well, how are works going to play in? I, I thought you said you loved me even if I didn't obey. So let's talk about obedience for just a second. 
before we land the plane on Psalm 119. When we talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we need to remember its fullness. The reason we cringe when we hear the word obey is because we're afraid of something called legalism. That we think if you do enough right things, then you'll be right with God. Well, here's the catch on legalism. Legalism separates the law of God from the person of God, right? Legalism looks at God's law and what he's commanded, and it does not look at God's person. It just says, okay, I've got to do all these things, and and I've got to, right? It's idolizing the word. But what happens in the gospel? What happens in the gospel? Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says this. It's misleading to say that God accepts us exactly how we are. Rather, he accepts us despite the way we are. He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sake. He does not mean to leave us the way he found us, but to transform us into the likeness of his son. So we're not trying to be legalistic. We're not trying to separate God's commands from his person. We're not demanding obedience so that we can be right with God. We don't think obedience or your works for Christ will lead you to salvation. But we think if your works never line up with what you claim God did in your heart, then maybe God didn't do anything in your heart. We demand obedience because through the gospel, we have come to trust the loving, gracious, kind words of God. Let that sink in. If you claim to have been saved by such a radical grace, such a radical love, then wouldn't you come to trust that one who saved you? Wouldn't you come to realize, hey, when he tells me something, I can believe it. So God's commands are not arbitrary, pulled out of a hat. They're for our good. So if you claim to have been saved by such a radical grace, then doesn't it make sense that you would trust the one who saved you? And when he tells you to do something and gives you commands, you would say, he obviously knows what's best. He obviously has my good in mind. He obviously has my joy in mind because he saved me in the first place. So that's why we obey God's word. I I was thinking about this even this morning. When it comes to parenting, we would never think someone is a better parent because they don't demand obedience of their kids. Right? That would be foolish if Jonathan was running to the street. And I said, well, his heart's to go there anyway and I'll forgive him when he comes back. Right? Grace. Give him grace. What about giving him life? The point of grace is to lead us to life. I'd be a foolish parent if I didn't stop my child from running into the road. Right? Isn't that why we parent? Isn't that why we tell them? Like Jonathan every morning wakes up and says, I want to change. And I always tell, he has no clue what I'm saying back to him, but I always tell him, buddy, you don't not want to change. Trust me. You don't want to go through all day with a dirty diaper. You don't not want to change your diaper because you're going to have a rash. You're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to get sick. Buddy, look. Hey, come here. I know what's best. Hey, is there any chance that's what God's saying to us and why he's demanding our obedience? 
He's going, I, I saved you. I loved you. I sent my son to die because I showed you what I was like and what you should be like and you could never do it. So I showed you Jesus who makes you right. And you still don't trust me? You still don't, John 14, 15, love me enough to obey my commandments? Obedience is an act of love because it's us hearing God's word telling us to do something and us saying, I love you so much that I might not always know why. I might not always know how. But since you said to do it, I love you so much that I will. That's why we obey God's word. Not because we're legalistic, but because we're madly in love. So Psalm 119, I hope I've given us a framework today to think through Psalm 119 and for you on your own to spend 20 or 30 minutes reading through it. Because God's word does three things. It shows us what he's like. Shows us what we should be like. And it shows us Jesus. All of it shows us Jesus who makes us right. And so the way you can get in the word of God is that you can pray. Ask God for a desire. What should we do with it? We should desire his word. Have you ever prayed, God, help me to desire your word? That's a noble prayer. Let's pray that together. That God would kindle the fire in our souls to love this word. So let's desire God's word. And as we become familiar with it, let's meditate on it. Let's not be satisfied with a mere head knowledge. Let's work that down into our souls so that it changes us. And then let's fight together to obey God's word because we can trust him.